It's March 26, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the Geek Beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Mike King from Ikezo to tell us about a class he's doing for Pacific New Media. Finally, we'll go behind the scenes of the recent Honolulu Mini Maker Fair, find out what happened, and find out what's coming next. Have your questions and thoughts ready to call in or tweet, but first, the headlines. Well, the University of Hawaii announced on Monday that its West Oahu campus will benefit from a $245,000 federal grant to build a STEM center of excellence. The Office of Naval Research Funds will go toward upgrading the school's current physical science laboratory. The STEM center will focus on science, technology, engineering, and math education, and the new interactive facility will house curriculum that will be jointly developed by UH West Oahu faculty from both science and business administration departments. A key part of the grant will be creating the UH system's first STEM-related academic program in facilities management. The interdisciplinary Bachelor of Science concentration will incorporate science, engineering, energy efficiency, facility operations, and business coursework. The funds will also go toward acquiring new hands-on equipment for K-12 teacher education, a two-mile-long outdoor path featuring a solar system stroll, and an entrance portal that will display real-time science and technology data ranging from weather to building energy usage. Well, Sherry Proper, UH West Oahu Director of Strategic Initiatives, said in a statement, the potential for participation with private industry partners in the development of uh, faculty of facilities management and other new academic programs housed under the STEM Center of Excellence makes this a very exciting endeavor. Uh, the new STEM Center is part of the new uh, UH West Oahu campus, which opened two years ago in Kapolei after several decades as part of the Leeward Community College campus. The Office of Naval Research, meanwhile, coordinated science and technology programs for the U.S., Navy, and Marine Corps and provides grants that develop a STEM-savvy workforce. Now, this sounds like a great program. I mean, uh, you know, I'd love to see the sort of the uh, curriculum that comes out of this. And, and I, you know, I'm kind of intrigued by this uh, solar system stroll. Right. You, and we've heard of th- there are some of these in other cities where mm-hmm. it's a basic a scale model of how far between the planets. I think that might be what it is. I'd definitely go out to check that out. But, uh, you know, STEM being a focus, the, uh, the Office of Naval Research does fund a lot of UH projects, including uh, Advanced Research Laboratory. Mm-hmm. But this certainly seems like more vocational in focus. I've never thought of combining uh, science and such and facilities management. So mm-hmm. I think that combination. Well, I like this uh, cool. easy H2O water filling station because that's kind of a cool idea. You know, instead of filling your cup or whatever, you know, just fill, fill your, your your jug or your. Jug. Yeah, uh, it saves on, you know, plastic bottles. Absolutely. For the first time in centuries, uh, the endangered Hawaiian nene goose has been spotted in the wild on Oahu. A family of them, in fact, with a pair of nene establishing a nest and hatching three goslings on the North Shore. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service today shared more details on this landmark development. While fossilized remains of nene have been found on most of the main Hawaiian islands, the population was limited to the Big Island by the time Westerners arrived in the late 1700s. Hunting and shrinking habitat cut that population from thousands to as few as 30 by the 1950s. Well, the Fish and Wildlife Service has worked to restore the nene population, which now exceeds 2,000 birds in the wild. While nene have been flown from Kauai to Maui and the Big Island aboard planes and helicopters, this pair of birds apparently reached Oahu on their own. 
The nest is located in the James Campbell National Wildlife Refuge near uh, near Kahuku, which is closed to the public and encompasses over 160 acres of wetland habitat set aside specifically to help rebuild populations of endangered birds. Nene, or Hawaiian geese, are the official state bird of Hawaii and an endemic species of the islands. Believed to be descendants of the Canada goose, the Nene arrived in the Hawaiian Islands about 500,000 years ago. Its earliest island ancestors, though, were four times larger than today's birds. The breeding season of the nene runs from August to April, which is longer than any other goose, and unlike most waterfowl, nene mate on land. One to five eggs are laid per season, taking about a month to hatch. Wild populations have been most successful in rebounding on the island of Kauai. Now these uh, two nene must have some very special homing uh, capabilities because they found exactly where the wildlife refuge is for endangered, uh, birds. For endangered birds. Maybe they read the signs. And it's protected. <laughs> but I mean, how they pick that and not the Honolulu Zoo or maybe your backyard. Or maybe the city. freeway, right? <laughs> well, I think that would be unlikely. But I thought it was interesting that there's this level of involvement in rehab- rehabilitating mm-hmm. the population, that they're using Coast Guard planes and helicopters and relocating these birds from Kauai to other islands to reestablish those wild populations. But I think it would be interesting to see more of them here on Oahu. No, definitely. And you know, when I've Seen them on uh, the on Maui. Uh, they are they're not ki- the kind of birds that you know you sort of approach them and they immediately fly away. They actually are sort of you know kind of walk slowly and you we're know, not recognized as a threat. Immediately. Perhaps not, and you know so it, it might be a little bit more dangerous. I'm glad they landed in the uh, in the I mean the uh, protected area. Well, newspapers continue to struggle to adapt to the digital age with the weather. Through online advertising, subscriber paywalls, or other strategies, now the Honolulu Star Advertiser is part of a new digital access package developed by the Washington Post. The Post, which was acquired by Amazon founder Jeff Bezos six months ago, had instituted a paywall about a year ago. To increase the appeal of its online subscription, the Post is offering free access to subscribers to six newspapers across the U.S., including the Star Advertiser. In addition to Hawaii's largest daily, participating newspapers include the Dallas Morning News in Texas, the Toledo Blade in Ohio, the Minneapolis Star Tribune in Minnesota, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette in Pennsylvania, and the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in Wisconsin. Washington Post President Stephen Hill said in a statement, The Post has long been a source for groundbreaking national journalism. This program is a way for us to work with newspapers and other print and digital partners around the country to both add value to their subscriptions and expose The Post to a wider audience than ever before. Well, prior to instituting its paywall, the Post was one of the last major U.S. newspapers to offer its content free online. As it's privately held, financial information is limited, but industry analysts believe the news operation was losing money. Now readers can read 20 articles a month before being prompted to subscribe for $10 or more per month. The Star Advertiser put its paywall up in August of 2011. Civil Beat had launched the year before as a subscription-only news service, though it has since made more content available for free. And Pacific Business News, meanwhile, offers a lot of free content online but requires a subscription to access its print content digitally. Now, you know, this is a, this is a great thing. I mean, I, you know, I kind of subscribe to uh, the Star Advertiser online. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this apparent, uh, well, this partnership with 
the post will become available in May. Uh, but I'm actually looking forward to being able to access the Washington Post as a result of my subscription. You know, I was trying, that, that's interesting. So, you know, I was thinking, well, I might have been able to be talked into subscribing into the to the Post because I'm interested in their journalism. Mm-hmm. And if I subscribe there, does do I get access to the advertiser? I'm not sure if that's true, but you're right that um, by, by subscribing to the advertiser, you can get some of this Post mm-hmm, content. Mm-hmm. So I think that works out. Um, it is a tough business to be in, mm-hmm. you know, and of course the Star Bulletin has to compete with the Huffington Post, which basically pastes and copies and pastes a lot of stuff out there for free. And even TV news websites are much better now. So even in my friends, I'm a news junkie, but I see fewer and fewer links for the Star Advertiser because of the paywall. So by increasing the value of those subscriptions, I think that that helps their business Mm -hmm. for sure. All right. And uh, finally, have you found strange spots on the leaves of your coffee plants? There's an app for that. In fact, an app developed by a faculty member at UH has helped identify what may be a new coffee pest. A coffee farmer used the app to send in photos of unusual yellow spots on the leaves and stems of his latest crop. Early analysis by faculty at the College of Tropical Agriculture and Human Resources, or CTAR, suggests that the symptoms have not been reported anywhere else in the world. And while the effects of the disease have yet to be determined, the fear is that it will render coffee cherries unusable. Well, Scott Nelson, who specializes in plant disease uh, epidemiology and management, created the Plant Doctor, a free app for iOS and Android that allows users to take photographs and submit descriptions of sick plants anywhere in the world and get a free diagnosis and suggestions to manage the problem. A farmer in South Kona submitted photos of the spotted leaves in January, and Nelson worked with colleagues Michael Melsner and Andrea Kawabata to investigate. They visited the farm and found several symptomatic plants in two locations, as well as infected plants across a fence in a neighboring farm. The researchers believe that the disease is similar to Emma viruses, a plant disease transmitted by mites that to date had never been observed in coffee. But the team is continuing its research to determine its vector, genetics, and degree of threat. They hope that more coffee farmers use the Plant Doctor app to submit more data. The State Department of Agriculture, meanwhile, is also looking into the disease and is considering conducting a survey of farms. Until the disease is confirmed, though, researchers say that coffee growers should at least take efforts to control mites, avoid transporting infected plants, and sterilizing their pruning tools. Well, you know, I, of course, an app, I figured I might check it out. I went to the the, uh, app store, and there's actually two uh, plant doctor app. So you got to be aware. There's one that actually costs two ninety nine, which uh, would for me I would be inclined not to get that one. <laughs> and I was looking for the free one. And there is so there is a plant doctor app which is free, which is the one that Scott Nelson did. And and I figured I'd uh, you know give it a try, see what would happen if I submitted a uh, maybe a request for some help. And I actually have a sick plant at home. It's an ohia tree that is actually dying because what I thought was perhaps the twig bore. And as it sort of bores within the uh, the branches, it's, it kills the branch. And and Scott got back to me, and so he's you know we're sort of conversing, and he's kind of looking at maybe what are some of the maybe some some samples of the the, the twig bores that are actually you know, drilling I, holes. And I would say in in terms of the return you get for your investment into a free app, this is a pretty good yeah, app where yeah. you you submit a picture and someone emails you back and well, says, "Well, the guy oh, who created right. it, <laughs> I've thought back. about your plant problem. Yeah. Here's my solution." So I would definitely encourage it. Now they did note um, the most recent update was that the farmer who reported these symptoms actually said, "Oh, well, these spots have been around for six years. Mm-hmm, so he mm-hmm. only tried the app in January, but it's actually been there a while, so they're going to continue that research. If you're interested in seeing if you have this, you can go to bit.ly slash coffeevirus, and that's the webpage that he created just for mm-hmm. this discovery. And, and it'll have pictures so you'll know which one to pick. 
Here's a couple of quick uh, stories we wanted to share with you. Um, and ahead on the tech calendar, the annual Institute for Astronomy Open House is coming up on Sunday, April 6th. It's a family-friendly space science fair held over at the Institute for Astronomy building on Woodlawn Drive in Manoa, featuring hands-on displays, games, and educational talks. You see Lego builds, telescopes, and a flight simulator and more next Sunday and, of course, more next Sunday from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And you can get more information by visiting ifa.hawaii.edu. One of my favorite uh, geeky events of yes. the year. Next, uh, Friends of the Hawaii Robotics will host the first in Hawaii Robotics regional competition. The 2014 competition will have 39 teams from local and international high schools. And they'll compete for the chance to participate in the World Championships in St. Louis, Missouri in April. Students are going to use their robots created during the six-week build to complete a variety of tasks within the high-energy high aerial assist game. So you can actually go and watch this competition. That's uh, Friday and Saturday, uh, uh, May, May or March, I think. I believe it's this weekend. Oh, that, I'm going to check because March. the dates... It's March, uh, 28 and 29th. March 28th and 29th uh, at the Stan Sheriff Center. Um, and one final quick breaking well, news We got a breaking news story? Yes, uh, waved Exclusive? through the window. Um the uh, HPR, the Hawaii Public Radio, is going to be heading into pledge season soon, and they did have an iOS app, but they are now very on the brink. If not now, within the next few hours, the launch of their Android app. So if you have an Android iPhone, you can download this free app very soon, and you can listen immediately, tap very simply into the live audio streams of HPR 1 mm-hmm. or HPR 2. So you can get your Bite Marks Cafe fix. You can listen to some jazz or classical music, mm-hmm. but more importantly, hopefully you can also participate and become a member. Ride. That's yes. right. So that's an exclusive. You heard it first <laughs> you heard on it Hawaii first Public here. Radio. Well, joining us here in the studio is Mike King from Ikezo to tell us about his class coming up called Intro to Git. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, guys. How's it going? Now, you know, I um, have to admit I am intrigued by Git and GitHub and, you know, all the coders that are out there using this, uh, this system to kind of share their code. But unfortunately, I don't actually actively take part in, in you know, doing, uh, participating in, in putting code there and doing pull requests, but maybe you can kind of give us a sense of what is it that you're going to cover in this class and why is it important? So for this initial course that we're doing, it's actually kind of an introduction for people that aren't familiar mm-hmm. with Git, the technology. Um, a lot of the times uh, folks are just getting into code and they're trying to figure out what's the best way I can keep backups of my code or I want to work with another person and how do we go about collaborating. Uh, Git basically provides you the infrastructure to be able to accomplish that with uh, all the proper tools that you need to do it really easily. And so this course is for uh, people that are new new to code that that want to learn what this uh, this technology git is about mm-hmm. as well as uh, the github which is a website that allows you to host all of your code in open source projects now a lot of um, coders get started they have their own pet projects they're building their apps or their games but git is kind of like that next dimension that they're likely to get into where you have to work and collaborate with other people and there's not necessarily even there might be a director or a controller but everybody is contributing and everybody has access to it and you did mention open source um, is Git an open source tool or Git is really just for any kind of collaborative programming? Git is an open source tool, but it is also for collaborative programming. Um, Git, the actual technology, is something that you download onto your machine and it allows you to kind of keep backups of all of your code. But the way that uh, the, the community aspect of it works is with using a, a, uh, a hosted repository. Most 
people use what's known as GitHub, which is kind of the social network for, for Git. That's where you can go and check out all the open source projects on the web, and that's where the largest amount of Git projects are actually hosted Okay, so, so Git is actually the program that resides on your machine. You, Precisely. You, you're actually developing whatever code that you want for your website or for some special web app or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then Git is the one that kind of publishes it to GitHub? Yeah, so uh, essentially Git is kind of a, a tool that just sits in the back. You just write your code, and then when you're ready to actually uh, save those changes, you do what's known as a, a Git commit. Mm-hmm. And once you commit it, you're basically saving your changes to this this uh, uh, version control system in the background. Once you're ready to actually contribute that to the team's uh, source code, then you can push that up to the uh, collaborative uh, repository, which is hosted on GitHub. Mm-hmm. Now, GitHub is one of many, though. There are others, I think. I think um, my 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 uh, employer uses uh, uh, Bitbucket, which is a type of Git repository. Sure, sure. But GitHub is certainly the most well known, and it has a lot of social features. Even though I'm not much of a programmer, I followed you on GitHub to see what you're building, including a wedding site for a friend and things like that. So it's a really interesting way to see your activity. In fact. Um, if if anything, if you want to ask about relevance of GitHub to somebody who's trying to get into development, more and more people check your GitHub profile as a way to evaluate whether to hire someone. Oh, most definitely. That's something, one of the first things that we do uh, at Akezo for engineers is we actually ask them for their, their Git username so that we can check out what uh, projects they're working on and mm-hmm. how they're contributing to the open source community. Mm-hmm. So Git GitHub as a social network really provides kind of uh, the the second half of the resume for us nowadays. Well, I'm glad I'm not uh, applying for any programming jobs because my, <laughs> my Git uh, account has <laughs> hardly anything in it. Now, it would make sense that uh, you need to know about programming to attend this workshop? Uh, sort of. This actual workshop is for kind of an introductory to Git. So if you just have a basic knowledge of HTML and CSS, mm-hmm. you've fiddled around with websites before, we can kind of get you in the door and let you know exactly what it is that Git can provide you in terms of your workflow. And what will people have coming out of this? Will they have their Git Hub profile set up and be following everybody? Essentially, yes. Uh, part of the course it will be actually setting up Git on the machines, showing them how to make commits, showing them how to contribute to a repository, and setting up their accounts. So, I mean, now I'm thinking maybe I should attend this. I mean, I enjoy poking around, and I've done a pull to correct a typo, but that's about it. But um, the way you mentioned it, it's not necessarily about developing a mobile app. It could be used to develop, uh, like you had a wedding website or just a, just an informational web page. That is also something that doesn't just have have to reside with one person. It can be collaboratively contributed to. You can review and say, I like this change. I don't like this change. So it might be worth something for, for anyone even interested in technology in general. Oh, yeah, precisely. Uh, like that project that you mentioned, that was actually another friend that's an engineer uh, of mine. And uh, he wanted to work on a, a website together. And uh, essentially, we set up the website through Git. And he was able to send me the the requirements and everything in, in sort of text files through the repository. Mm-hmm. And I was able to actually build the website and push it back up to, to the, the host on GitHub, and that's how we actually built that site out together. And I, think, I think the reason why it's attractive is you can even think about this in terms of writing a document with your coworkers. Precisely. If you're, if you're mm-hmm. passing a document around, someone's going to 
accidentally overwrite your change, lose the file, whereas this finds a way to manage all of those changes and you can review those changes and track those changes. That's so, great. Mike, where, when, how much does it cost to participate? Uh, so this course is actually going to be April 6, 2014, mm-hmm. so that's two Sundays from now. Uh, it's a half-day course, so it's from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., and we're doing this at UHM, uh, Sakamaki Building, mm-hmm. which is C104. It's uh, part of the Manoa Multimedia Lab, and it's all done through Pacific New Media course. Uh, the course is about uh, 60 bucks, and you can find out more uh, of this course at uhm.outreach.com backslash pnm. Great. We'll right. definitely put it up in our show notes, and I think it's a very important class to, to attend because uh, we were all encountering the, you know, the whole GitHub uh, experience. Thanks, Mike, for joining us. Uh, thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Alan Saladam and Ross Mukai to tell us about the Mini Maker Fair and how it all came together. What is a maker? Are you a maker? We're makers, and why is this gaining popularity? We'd, of course, love your questions and comments. If you were there, I want to hear about it because ah, it was an event that I hated to miss. <laughs> if you want to be part of the conversation, you can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877 877- Seven nine four one three six eight nine, And, of course, we're live here in the studio monitoring Twitter as we speak. You can Twitter, tweet us at, at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Have you ever found yourself interested in a local news report and then missed half of it because you got a phone call? Or maybe you had to park the car and turn the radio off. If you want to find out how that report ended, you can go to hawaiipublicradio.org and click on News. There you'll find links to individual reporters' stories, contributors' essays, neighbor island reports, and the talk show audio archives. The HPR website. It's just a click away. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Sheila Himmel. I'm Fran Smith. We're authors of Changing the Way We Die. Next time on New Dimensions, we'll be talking about compassionate end-of-life care. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Alan Solidum and Ross Mukai. Of course, I, you know, I, I put these intros together, so Alan, bear with me. Alan sure. is one of the organizers <laughs> for the Oahu or Honolulu Mini Maker Fair. He's also an entrepreneur and programmer working on Happy Hour Pal. Ross, meanwhile, is chief maker at the Oahu Makerspace and also a key organizer for the Mini Maker Fair. And uh, what was it that finally brought the community together to pull off the Mini Maker Fair? We'd love to hear your questions and comments, too. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Alan and Ross, we want to welcome you both to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. Thank you for having us. How's it going, Bert? Well, you know, I'm going to ask you the uh, the big question that everybody asks me, Ross. What is a maker? Well, makers are anyone that's working on things and doing creative things, and then you know, putting output out there into the community or into the world, and into the open source, into the closed source, into the entrepreneurial fields. They're they're working on hobbies. They're building things for themselves. They're building things for other people. They're maybe they've invented something and they're taking it to market. Mm-hmm. They're running kickstarters and putting new things out there. All right. Well, 
that's a very broad, and I like that it's inclusive. But uh, let, how about a quick quiz, Ross? Is a is a is a carpenter a maker? Yes. Is, is a it? circuit builder a maker? Yes. Is a knitter is, a maker? Is, knitter. Yes. Okay. Is a, is a painter a, a, a maker? Yes. Okay. So um, although it is very popular among the tech and geek set, um, it can go pretty traditional. In fact, I would say probably even a blacksmith making horseshoes would be a maker. Yes, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So, so Alan, I mean, you know, I mean, all of these kinds of activities existed before mini maker or maker fairs came into play, sure. and and you know, I mean, what is it about now that it's sort of getting an attention being placed on it by having these sort of maker fairs, a movement? Yeah, a How movement, that so to speak. Sure, I, I think it's, it has a lot to do with um, just the maybe ease of being able to do this sort of thing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, We've gotten down to the point where, like, if I want to put a website up, it's really easy. You just push something out in Heroku. Uh, or, but even, like, now in the hardware level, uh, if you want to um, make a board, you can send it out to Osh and have them build, turn something around for you in, within a week's time. And these are things that are easy for people now to even, like, now even fund their events by having Kickstarters. And so it's it's not where you have to be a big corporation now. Like, you're hearing, like, people just working out of their garage and being able to start even like businesses or companies just from things that they thought were interesting and mm-hmm, other people mm-hmm. went on board with that as well. Well, you would have uh, 3D printers now, so you might be able sure. to conceive of something and then have it in your hand. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we did mention knitters, and we did mention some pretty traditional ways that people create arts and crafts and, and, and things that they might sell on Etsy. Those people are makers as well. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, tell me if I'm wrong, but what, what appealed to me about this movement from the very beginning is that uh, as much as I love technology and as much as I'm proud of raising three geeks, you know, there is kind of that part of me that goes, boy, they're spending so many times looking at screens. They're spending more time in virtual worlds. They're imagining things and maybe they're visualizing things, but boy, those hands are fairly idle. And what I like about makers and what I find compelling is that you're back and forming things, creating things in the physical world to a large extent, although a website maybe not. But, sure. you know, these are things that you can almost make. It's almost like whatever happened to shop class, vocational school, here we're going back to that kind of thing. Yeah, I very much actually, even though I'm a software developer, I very much enjoy the hardware space as well. I like playing around with, like, let's say drones or, like, uh, just working with electronics um, where I feel like it's more, like, tangible, something you can see. Uh, because when things are just an app or on the screen, it's harder to get people excited about that. But when you have like an LED strip moving back and forth, people get super excited about that. Well, sort I'm of super stuff. excited about that uh, that that connector that you have for your iPhone. There, <laughs> it, it has a blinking light yeah. on. Like on um, yeah. Ross, um, Lego. Sorry, I'm going to keep keep running you. Lego Master Builders are they makers? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, anybody just building things, expanding their horizons, learning how to do things so that they can do more things. So that's to me what making is. So you know, has there is this kind of a generational thing uh, in terms of how you've seen it, this movement start up? Because you know, like there were auto shop uh, classes before, there was wood shop before. You know, there's people that were you know going through vocational training to do a lot of these things. But I think there there seems to be kind of a new generation that is interested in in getting into the hands on aspect of all mm-hmm. of this, and. Since you know the the U.S. has sort of outsourced all of their you know manufacturing to other countries, I think there's a resurgence of interest in actually getting into making your own things. I mean, what what do you think about this sort of being a generational shift? I I don't know if uh, I, I mean I've always been interested in how things work. Mm-hmm. So for me personally, it's just like wanting to tear things apart and see how they function, and then like a lot of makers like to improve on that, and that's a big part of what they do. 
Uh, so when we've moved to a place where you are buying things like overseas or like you're not seeing how they work, so they're everything becomes maybe like a mystery. Mm-hmm. So maybe mm-hmm. there is that interest of people wanting to really see what's inside that black box and wanting to know like how it functions and how to make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think many of us older folks might have memories of taking apart clock radios or cars and things. Now I would be very upset if my son said, I wonder if I could take apart this iPad. So, you know, <laughs> that certainly is part of it. We're talking to Alan Salaram and Ross Mukai, just two of the very hardworking, um, passionate people and volunteers who made the recent Mini Maker Fair happen. If you were there, tell us your favorite thing about the Maker Fair, and if you missed it, what do you think you'd like to see at an upcoming event? You can give us a call at 941-3689 or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Now, Alan, um, Maker Fair, capital M, capital F, with an E on the end because it's very artsy, (laughs) is not just a movement in that case. It's a brand. It's a specific um, affiliation with, like, Make Magazine, a specific publication. There's a very strong affiliation with San Francisco and that community Mm -hmm. there. So I'm kind of curious, how did it become a organized event with that brand here in Hawaii rather than what often happens is you bring your drones, I'll bring my Legos, let's just have fun? Uh, This was um, a big collaboration, a big group of people getting together to make this happen. Uh, I actually came in later after they went, decided to go with the Maker Faire brand, but you actually pay for the licensing fee, mm-hmm. and they actually put up, like, your event on their website. Mm-hmm. Uh, they give you a playbook of, like, milestones you're supposed to reach, and then they also encourage you to, like, do surveys before and after the event, and they provide you the results of those surveys that you can, like, use towards, like, uh, your your next event if you want to go forward with it. You know, there was uh, um, discussions about having a Maker Faire here in Hawaii that probably spanned Maybe years, a better part probably. of a year and a half, you know, almost two years. Uh, you know, you guys have been being a part of sort of the the organizing, and I know, you know, it's it's sort of gone through cycles of of uh, people. But um, I'm kind of curious, uh, Ross. You know, in terms of your your getting involved and seeing from the beginning of how it sort of evolved over time, um, what was it that really kind of helped bring it together? Because, you know, when in the early days, I mean. You know, it was all about trying to find somebody that was going to take the ball and run with it. What, what ultimately, well, who ultimately took the ball? Was it you guys? And how did it actually come together? Well, we had a great team that came together and took the ball. And then we dropped the ball for a little while, but we, <laughs> we always got it back. And we definitely ran with it. Um, I think the big thing that really pulled it all together was getting the venue. Because mm-hmm, we had, mm-hmm, we had right that here, was yeah. the hugest challenge was getting the venue and... Um, saying that, okay, this venue will work, it's the right size, and it's not too big, it has the right parking, um, it's not too small, we can fit all these people, oh, we've got all these other people we want to bring, they want to light fires, they want to... Um, <laughs> They want to drive and uh, things drive. A friend that of mine wanted to brew some beer, and that, and yeah, that, that didn't happen. Yeah, but yeah. We, we want to brew beer. We want to light fires. We want to go underwater. We want to be up in the air. We want to be driving things on the ground. And it, that makes it hard to organize a venue, and mm-hmm, then you have to mm-hmm. decide, well, how many people are going to come to this thing? Is it going to be you know, 20 people? Is it going to be 2,000 people? Mm-hmm, we got to mm-hmm. size the venue before before anyone's even heard of the event, and we're not really sure how many people around Hawaii are going to come, you know, to the event. And then we had we had delays getting getting a venue. We had um, some other venues that would have worked really well, but there were other things that, like parking and uh, location, that would have made it not work too well. And then Iolani mm-hmm. stepped in and said, hey, use Iolani. And we were like, oh, great. that That's awesome. Um, the, park, the parking is there. All the facilities are there. They've got the really awesome Sullivan Center. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we just... 
filled the whole thing up. So the original plan was, I mean, was there, were there some conservative estimates of how many people might show up and, and what was the actual numbers at the end of the event? I think for us, we were shooting for maybe just having 20, 20 to 25 makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the numbers um, maybe people are throwing out were maybe like two to 300. Um, I tend to always want to go bigger, so I wanted oh. to do more. And I was thinking maybe along the lines of maybe 500, you know, 500 mm-hmm. plus people. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the day, what what was the count? So uh, on Eventbrite, because we had people sign up on Eventbrite tickets, that came out to about 600 plus. But to actually show up to the event was over 750 people. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was very well received. How many And how many actual tables of makers were represented there? So I think we had about 30 makers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the third floor, I forgot how many were up there, like 20 maybe. And then like on the bottom level where Ross was, um, I don't know how many you had there, like – there was a we had like six ten. or seven, yeah. And there was even a, a soldering lab that I I thought was kind of a, a, mm-hmm. a soldering workshop. So if you ever never you know if you never took a soldering gun to a uh, integrated circuit, I mean it's kind of a fun thing to do. Yeah, that was one of the one of the good workshops that we had. High capacity helped sponsor that, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, um, we had signups before that and before the event even started. Um, they, we sold out on the um, that workshop. It's certainly something that I know everybody wanted to see happen, but it is does come down to the volunteers on the ground that makes it happen. But I know that there was input from like Kauai makers, uh, Jerry Isdale in Maui, the Maui makers, uh, and uh, Bill Chi at UH. I think one of the first venues was going to be Brian Chi. Uh, Brian Chi, yeah. sorry. Uh, so I mean, it it it, it was quite a, a accomplishment to, to to pull it all together. We're talking to Alan Sodom and Ross Mukai, key organizers and one of many volunteers that made the Honolulu Mini Maker Fair the first ever happen at Ilani school. And if you've got a question, if you want to know what it takes to put on an event like this and how you find the really interesting knitters and solderers and uh, fire setters, you give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. Now, Alan, like you said, uh, or as uh, Ross said, Iolani kind of stepped in and said, we can house this. They had a beautiful facility. But I, I, I am kind of curious how you felt then the educational component was achieved or not achieved with the Mini Maker Fair. Obviously, they said this is good for our school because we want our students to be exposed to this. Um, from the edu- from an educator's point of view, how would you rank the success of your event? I think it went very well. Uh, uh, we had um, probably over 80% were family and friends that showed up. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a, a lot of families there and a lot of kids lot seeing, of kids, like, yeah. uh, seeing um, uh, different activities that they could do. Um, a lot of our makers had activities that were well geared towards children. Um, so part of what we wanted to do was inspire uh, other makers and also you know, the future generation to want to continue doing uh, these sort of things mm-hmm. as well. One, uh, one of the aspects that I thought was really kind of a, a neat thing was that uh, there were the tables, and you could visit all the makers that were there. But uh, let's say every couple of hours, there was a, a workshop, a presentation. Yeah. And, and it covered a variety of different things, uh, I know, uh, including one, one of which was like, uh, you know, Kickstarter, how to, you know, how to benefit from Kickstarter. Sure. Who, whose idea was that? Or was that part of the playbook that the, the, the Maker Fair guys come up with? You know, it may have been part of the playbook, but I definitely know that John Shear, who's one of the uh, organizers, one of the key organizers, really kind of pushed to get that done. <laughs> Uh, that was a great idea. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We really pushed to try to get people in our community to come out and do talks, but it, you know, it's pretty difficult. And uh, usually at the last second, people will come in and like sign up. You know, my favorite thing about the, the educational thing at the, the Maker Fair was um, I think the whole point of the, the fair and um, the whole point about makerspaces and the reason I support and 
put in, you know, 20-hour days working on makerspaces is um, we, we give people screwdrivers. And that's kind of like um, if, the only, if the only tool you have is a hammer, then every problem looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And you give someone a screwdriver and they say, wow, I've never seen that before. And now they have a different approach to solving a problem. So we teach people how to solder, how to do something on a CNC, how to do something that they've never seen before. And they can take that and apply that as a solution to another problem. And then that that all gets added into the category of what you didn't know that you didn't know. Uh, um, to that point, like another thing that I liked, I think you brought it up, um, Ryan, was the the diversity of the community coming together. So you have like the knitters and then people working in drones and just like everyone like solves problems in different ways. So when you get these people together, like something that like how someone knits is like could be interesting and something that I'm trying to do if like let's say I'm doing stuff with conductive fabrics or something Mm -hmm. and something I would never have thought about. But now that I'm able to interact with these different diverse groups, now we can have this interaction that can lead to something new. No, maybe, I'm, I'm, maybe you want a knitted cozy for your drone. Oh, yeah, or <laughs> no, wearable computing that, you know, has, uh, has a you know, nice sweater. I'm curious, when organizing this event and being the first one, it, it really kind of depends on your contacts in the community sure. for the people to basically feel comfortable that they should come and, and participate. So I'm curious, which one of you has the contact with the knitters? <laughs> I I don't know them. Yeah, it so was a lot that, that might right? have been one of like after we got the word out that was like talking to someone. Oh, else that's that, like, no, that's great. I think because, that's great. Yeah, that yeah. they might have gotten in touch and said, right. "Hey, we're yeah. in that group." Yeah, we're talking to Alan Solomon and Ross Mukai, organizers of the first, but certainly not last, Honolulu Mini Maker Fair. More on that toward the end of the show. But if you've got a question about this event or um, what you can help to do to make it happen again, you can give us a call here at nine four one three six eight nine or from the neighbor islands eight seven seven nine four one three six eight nine. We have a question on Twitter from uh, Ville and uh, her husband, and she says, "Ask." Alan, if bakers are makers too, or just fakers? Oh, so well, you know, Alex I think a, a baker is a maker because I, I love the are cookies. Definitely makers. They make yeah, science makers. and art happening right there. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you've got a full house of consensus that uh, bakers are makers. How much? How much food uh, food pro- production do you think would be part of a, a maker fair, if not at your event? Uh, you know, I don't know. We had Cal Cal Grill come in, and they pretty much covered the entire event. Mm-hmm. I was c- kind of concerned that. They might have some issues covering the entire event, but uh, they you mean did in a terms great of job. Uh, um, being able to provide the the food, amount of food, the that, amount of food yeah. for because we had at, at that time six hundred fifty or, or so people sign up on Eventbrite, mm-hmm. and then um, at every meeting, at every Maker Fair planning meeting. Noah Hafner always had the best cookies that he would bake. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so perhaps just by that alone, a baker would be a maker. Yes. Yeah. But, yeah, but I've seen some, so. some cupcakes and things that are some pretty creative things that I feel would definitely fit right into definitely. that. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No. So uh, I think maybe these are some great ideas for you know maybe next year's mm-hmm. uh, Maker Fair. There but should the, be a whole floor called the, bake, <laughs> the Baker Makers. <laughs> the Baker Makers. Well, if you want to take charge of that, Ryan, we're more than happy oh, to I, have you. You know what? I'll volunteer to do the Baker Maker Floor. Okay, I'm, I'm writing it right now. <laughs> All right, you made the list. <laughs> okay, uh, well, we can. We, you know, let's take the call right now because we got some time. It's Kai from Kaneohe. Uh, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Hi. Hi. How you doing? Good. And I just heard that you guys were asking how Aloha Knitters got involved. Uh, yes. Alan, oh yeah. As a matter of fact, I've been in touch with. I'm the one who. Um, someone on Twitter asked someone who knew us if we were going to be there. 
So was that the compelling reason to get involved by, by just sort of this, uh, this conversation was taking place on Twitter? Pretty much. It's one of those things where we're very loosely organized bunch of people, mm-hmm. but um, because of some of the people who are involved, I think that we have the most visible presence on social media. Mm-hmm. So there are people locally who know about us, um, and we participated in some other events, uh, like the museum's Family Sunday. Um, we did a second Saturday at Hawaii State Art Museum a couple years ago. With things like that, I think eventually people were like, oh, yeah, you know, they'll totally do something. Mm-hmm. Even though, you know, they is actually this very vague, nebulous, <laughs> you know, kind of, a, kind of a thing. But, yeah, it was seriously, I went on Facebook. I said, hey, someone's asking, you know, if we want to do Maker Fair, and immediately... Three or four people said, yeah, let's do it. So uh, let me ask you. So um, knitting is a tried and true long tradition of, of creators and talents. And you are said, and you were asked to come to an event where people are flying drones and, and setting fire to circuits and, and, and things like that. I mean, how did you yes. feel coming out of that as a knitter? Um, were your creative juices inspired by these odd interactions? Absolutely. Um, it's one of those situations where a surprising number, perhaps to people outside of it, a surprising number of people in tech are knitters. Mm-hmm. There's huh. a relationship, you know, happening there again with the making, but also um, in a lot of ways, I think that you can compare knitting to coding in terms of things like being able to use a language. In the case of knitting, you're actually the computer. You're the one who's, you know, taking lines of code and creating something. I like that. Well, yeah, knit, uh, knitting. I mean, it's a very pattern-oriented thing. I mean, you can't go out of pattern because it'll be all messed up. <laughs> right, and as a lot of people know, um, looms were really the first computers. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so right, textiles right. and technology have a very long relationship. Um, so it was a blast for us. We got to meet a lot of people whom we might not have seen otherwise. Um, we totally ran into people who were just happy. Um, to, you know, sit down, refresh their memory on a couple of skills, find out about the meetings, and, and immediately, you know, a few new people showing up at our knit nights, which was really awesome. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Well, Sandy, Sandy from uh, uh, Hawaii Public Radio was, is also a knitter, and uh, she does the Brazilian show, and uh, she was there, and uh, and even uh, Michael Titterton showed up, so that was, it was great. Now, um, so Kai, thanks for thanks for calling in and thanks for uh, sharing your experience. I know you you uh, you had the the center sort of center area there, and you were surrounded by. I, I remember there were some uh, some three D printers, there were some robots, there were some there was like a whole variety of things that were surrounding you. Yeah, and it was a lot of fun. It actually ties in a lot with things that I research and write about, um, including the ways that some people are using Arduino to produce open source. There's a couple of projects where they're Arduino to power um, to power knitting machines that you can build yourself. Mm-hmm. For oh, very cool. So, yeah, there are open source projects out there, and again, I mean, really, some people think that it's 3D printing. <laughs> well, thanks for giving us so, a call. Yeah, thanks, Guy, for sharing your right. experience. Thank well, you. Thank you for talking to the guys at Maker Fair, and we hope sure. to see you there next year. Thank and uh, we'll be taking yeah. this short break to continue our conversation with Alan Saladam and Ross Mukai about the making of the Honolulu Mini Maker Fair. We'll hear about more of those interesting interactions, perhaps some of the more popular exhibits. Is there more to come for the maker movement in Hawaii? We'd love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. 
Museums as a business can be a curious proposition. We're not interested in going after the thing that costs a lot of money. We're interested in going after the thing that can make a difference in terms of how we see the past. I'm Kai Rizdal with the president in Europe and Russia in Crimea, a museum of the Cold War next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Imagine John Grisham volunteering to mentor you in writing a thriller. He could have taken a look at this thing and said, I don't have time for this. This piece of junk. I'm sorry, Tony. It's over. But he didn't. So I took another eight months and wrote another. It was really a third draft by that time. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we're talking to Alan Sodom and Ross Mukai about starting the first Honolulu Mini Maker Fair. And, of course, what do you see as the future of the Maker Fair here in uh, Honolulu, as well as maybe uh, elsewhere on the neighbor islands? And, of course, you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, uh, you know, right next to the knitters were the were some of the robotics guys. And uh, that was a kind of a cool exhibit that they had. And, you know, what was actually cooler was the fact that they were from Punahou. And that they were, you know, like uh, uh, showing me how to sort of manage the uh, control of the, the robot. And, and actually it, it was doing some pull-ups. Could go up and, and grab a bar and do some pull-ups. Um, you know, what do you guys see as being perhaps uh, – Judging from the turnout and the participation, and now that people have actually participated, um, do you see it continuing on? Obviously, you do, but I mean, do you see how do you see you know sort of grabbing more of the makers that are out there? Because I know there's a, there's a lot of them out there. Sure, um, I definitely see it happening again, <laughs> uh, and I definitely see it growing. Uh, like you talked about earlier in terms of the networks we reached out to, like mine tend to be startup and tech-related. Mm-hmm. So I was worried that it was going to be a lot of that. And so when Aloha Knitters came in, I was really excited. But now that she called, she's th- they're saying they're technology as well. So maybe mm-hmm. we didn't That's do fantastic. such a good job. <laughs> but like the blacksmiths just came in. Yeah, yeah. Also, there was a blacksmith there. He was he was pounding out some metal stuff. And, you know, I thought maybe it was. That's uh, Alex Alexander Etuati. He's, mm-hmm. a, he's a good friend. I know um and he he's actually a disabled Iraqi vet, and he just does that to teach kids. And he was help- actually the thing that he was running out there was um, clay. He had blocks of clay because clay moves in a really similar way to molten metal. Mm-hmm. So he had kids pounding on wooden anvils with wooden hammers with uh, blocks and straps of clay just to shape it into whatever they could. Mm-hmm. And it was a it was a good simulation for what you'd expect actually blacksmithing because he's over there moving hot metal and they're moving clay, and they can see. Mm-hmm how what they're doing relates to what's actually happening with the metal. Now, I, I did, um, there, was a, there was a bunch of cool exhibits, and one of them was uh, this guy who created this can counter. I don't know if you guys saw the can counter, but oh, yeah. you, yeah, that was like a, a, a typical kind of maker, inventor Hawaii, kind Hawaii of Inventors that. Association. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was yeah, really yeah. neat. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, you could see all the bolts that he, you know, he uh, riveted into this uh, device that actually kind of lifted up a, a um, look like a rubbish can and sort of dump the cans and they would basically it would count the cans and that was kind of cool and then there was another one where um, one of the guys who actually does the um, 
he does costumes and and he kind of molds I guess his own costumes and stuff and and uh, that was a pretty interesting exhibit. He had some pretty. I think interesting... there were several of those. Yeah, uh, I know Keone Memori was out there. He had he had the Keone in carbonite, uh, mm-hmm, the big mm-hmm. tall carbonite, and then oh uh, that that looked like Ghostbusters the... guys yeah, were there. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, that would look like uh, from a Star Wars, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, Han Solo, uh-huh. Carbonite, yeah. yeah. Well, Alan, you know, I mean, we've talked a lot about, I, I'm I, again, mostly I'm primarily jealous that I missed yeah. the event. <laughs> um, and I would imagine that this excitement of seeing these physical things together uh, is certainly high. But you did mention that your background is more from the startup and the software side. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, that interaction, you know. Um, there is kind of this uh, perhaps pigeonholing of programmers and uh, apppreneurs and such into a specific box that they're working on apps and virtual things and making money and such like that. Um, but they are still part of this community. So how did you how did you find that match in practice? Well, uh, one group that came out was Dev League, and I think you may, you guys may have had him mm-hmm. on the show before. Mm-hmm. Russell Chang. Mm-hmm. And, um, Russell and, and um, um, Jason, uh, Jason, oh, Jason yeah. and, and, <laughs> <laughs> and Spencer, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, I talked to them and asked them to, uh, you know, I reached out to my network of who wanted to do a project. And the reason why I like kind of these community events is because it does get people together to mm-hmm. work on things. Uh, and also it gives like a date where people have to get things done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so people are pushed to like uh, try to get their projects done by a certain date. And uh, they did something with Raspberry Pi. I think it was um, a jukebox that would allow uh, people to up and down vote songs that are being played. And they built that in a course of maybe three weeks um, for this event. Mm-hmm. And so that's just these the, uh, school that are teaching people how to code and uh, moving forward with a project like this. And part of like now I can see them being part of the community later in terms of like needing more software devs in like the startup space here. Well, Ross, I mean, uh, maybe you can speak to that, too. You um, With Oahu Makerspace, again, I think I will think first of the hardware piece, but the software piece is important, creating the things that might run these tools that people are building. Um, Maybe just in your practice at your your Makerspace, um, how much does the software uh, skills and the the development community play a part? The software skills are huge, but... um it's it's kind of it encompasses it encompasses a huge range, especially when you're start trying to work with like physical things. You've got the regular the I/O stuff that um, everybody works with Arduinos and Raspberry Pis. They're trying to make it do something, working on a framework, and then you've got things that are just completely, you know, abstract. It's your own. You're trying to make a house in Blender, or you're trying to make parts in SketchUp, and uh, or you're in AutoCAD, SolidWorks. You know, <coughs> the hard CAD stuff. CAD is is like a monster of its own. I think I was doing CAD for about fifteen hours last night, and mm. uh, I'll eventually get done and I'll laser cut like a model of a building. But um, that's like even though what you see on the screen it's great, you know, you, you've got this model, you can look at it, you can fly through it, and all of that. And then when you send it to the machine, the machine doesn't know what you're talking about sometimes because you started with the model differently than how the machine wants you to have started from. It sees things mathematically. You're seeing things visually. They don't line up exactly, mm-hmm. and that's that's a lot. That's a lot of things to learn, and, and that's an art to some mm-hmm. extent. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of software that's making it a lot easier. Things are getting more intuitive, especially things like SketchUp. Um, I think SketchUp is probably the easiest, or SketchUp and Tinkercad. They're probably the easiest, like beginner level CAD, especially because they're free. Um, but there's so many people out there that are that are learning CAD. You know. There's no, there's not much to stop them from making at least models of the things that they want to make. So I think 
CAD is like um, it's like a way to express um, ideas that you have, kind of like words and paper and speaking. Right. Those are those are ways to express ideas that you have. Other ideas that you might have, they only get expressed by creating something tangible that you can look at. And CAD is the is the bridge between working with your hands and uh, you know getting that idea out of your head and onto a medium, not necessarily paper. Right. And I should mention, or we should mention, SketchUp, I think, was a, is now a Google product. It's free on the web. Uh, and we had used it to redesign our office. And because I'm not an architect, but I just wanted to say, look, if you're standing in this doorway and you look down this way and you put an office here, that might not be the line of sight you're expecting. Mm-hmm. And the way to visualize it was, uh, was, was fantastic. Now, you know, one of the things I'm curious about is uh, having now gotten the first one under your belt – what would what would be some of the things you would like to do to perhaps improve it for next year? Uh, well, definitely go bigger, but that's my motto. For <laughs> <laughs> you like big, right? I mean, you know, you're probably shooting for like fifteen hundred stadium. Well, 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 stadium. <laughs> I, I I think what we're all interested in doing is growing the community mm-hmm. and having more people come out and and see what we're doing. Uh, but we're also not interested in kind of just doing the same thing over. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Some things that I actually wanted to see that we weren't able to do is because it was a daytime venue was something that would uh, – like a lot of people are doing things with maybe s- some light or like laser light shows or something like that. Mm-hmm. It would be harder to do that during the day. So we've talked about maybe just having a, a dark room as, um, or like maybe even doing something that goes into nighttime. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are definitely more makers um, – like more outside of the community that we have now that we have that we've done this event, I'm sure there's going to be a lot more people wanting to come to the next one. Well, you know, Bert and I know all about grassroots organizing, and well, well, let's just say unorganized events. <laughs> but yeah. for something to be sustainable, it kind of does does need a structure. It kind of does need a a, a boss, and you know, people who have certain roles to play. Um, I, I just watching the mailing list and seeing all of these resources come together and people participate was great. But obviously, I think another part of it would be to formalize something. Or is that not necessary? Is that just not the maker way? No, I think. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I, I, I think <laughs> I think that's a big part of it. But the makers, I mean, what's amazing was the makers um, themselves do like just that making things. So like we needed signs printed up and everyone like Ross had ideas. Uh, Brian had ideas of like. And, like, we needed uh, sandwich boards for directions and how to get mm-hmm, there. And, like, mm-hmm. a lot of resources that we need, these guys had. And mm-hmm. so that was amazing because we didn't have to line item that budget. Well, okay. So, but to Ryan's point, I mean, there needs to be an organization. So I think, you know, from a Maker Fair standpoint, I mean, they want to have, I don't know, maybe a nonprofit or something be formed. What, what's your thoughts about something like that and ha- that happening? Uh, we have talked about that. Um, and, yeah. Your name has been dropped in there on occasion. So. <laughs> well, I didn't bring it up because my name was dropped in there, but I want to know that you guys are doing something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we have a year out to kind of work on that. And we, we've already actually have met since Maker Fair, talked about the next event, mm. and also uh, talked about what we want to see and do for the next event and also like what you brought up, like a, not a nonprofit mm-hmm, uh, for, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for the organization as well. Can I ask broadly when we should be penciling or circling a big section of our calendar to be ready so I don't schedule a real estate class for that Saturday? Uh, So unofficially, but pretty close, it's going to be sometime in March again, so a year from now. Like everyone seemed to like that date. And uh, there's a very good chance it's going to be at Iolani again. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Mm -hmm. Well, so there's also a year for this community to grow, as uh, Alan mentioned. Now, Ross, um, 
I I aspire to be a maker. I, I you know maybe I make websites and I play with Lego, so sort of qualify. But I'm kind of curious for somebody who says, "Wow, this community is vibrant and interesting. Blacksmiths and knitters in, all living together, mass hysteria." How do I participate? How do I become part of this uh, community that's growing? All you have to do is ask. Um, you just find. Find someone who's doing what you want to do and ask them about it and say, hey, that's cool. How do you do that? They'll either help you out, they'll get you started, or they won't. And Go find somebody know, else. Go find, <laughs> well, find other people who are doing interesting things. A makerspace? I mean, can I come and just chill and say, hey, what are you doing? You can definitely chill with me at the makerspace, but <laughs> um, the only thing is I'm trying to move the makerspace ah, out of the building we're in right now, so we can't take any new members right now. Um Hopefully we we can get the next uh, warehouse started, you know, really really soon. But even finding a warehouse mm. in commercial space in general, especially industrial space, I want to light fires, I want to do welding, I want to do woodworking. I need a computer lab, I need a conference room. That's that's like the trifecta of impossible things mm-hmm. to find in in the Honolulu right, area. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So between now and next March, I mean, do you see any kind of maker? fair-related activity, or is it pretty much just everybody's independent activity uh, going on? No, we, we've talked about maybe doing something like even, uh, as early as three months out from now, mm-hmm. uh, maybe just to get the makers and the volunteers together. And six months out is, I think, when we're going to really start pushing, like, not as frequent meetings, because, of course, like, as you get closer to event, it's going to ramp up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but... As early as six months from now, we're going to start talking about the next Maker Fair for sure. But, like, we definitely want to keep everyone engaged and um, involved. And, and, yeah, and, and there's a pretty active mailing list, right? I think that uh, you guys will continue to— You mean a spam list? Oh, so, oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let me ask you, Alan. If I, if somebody—maybe I signed up to be the Baker Maker guy. If somebody wanted to, to volunteer and become part of this movement uh, and make this event happen, how would they jump in? So I'd say right now just go to uh, MakerFairHonolulu.com. And there's a lot of information in there. But on the right side, there's, a, you know, if you want to apply as a volunteer or if you want to get involved on the committee, if you want to be a sponsor, we're looking for all of the above for our next event. Yeah, I think uh, sponsorships are also a, a kind of a challenge. I mean, and I think uh, maybe you can you can give a big thanks to one of your big sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> well, that definitely would be um, Elani stepped up with uh, the location and HCDC was our primary sponsor. Uh, we had a bunch of other sponsors as well, like FMA, Oceanet, and like 88Ts gave us a T-shirt. Mm-hmm. I love my mm-hmm. T-shirt. Yeah. yeah, I think even Bite Marsh Cafe might have been one of their sponsors. I don't know. Uh, well, full disclosure, I guess. <laughs> yeah, very I guess important. So. No, so okay, so uh, give us a website real quick. Uh, MakerFairHonolulu.com. Mm-hmm. Good. So Alan Solidum is an entrepreneur and programmer, and Ross Mukai runs the Oahu Makerspace, and we want to thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Bert. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Please join us next week when we will kick off with day one of the Spring Pledge Drive Challenge 2014. And, of course, if you missed any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on BiteMarksCafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at BiteMarksCafe.org. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Phoenix Foundation and a song called Sea World. See you next week on another, well actually a modified edition of Bite Marks Cafe because we're going into Pledge Drive. So that's always exciting. So stay tuned for that.